This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Rachel Hutchinson, Associate Professor of Japanese Studies in the Department of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures at the University of Delaware. Dr. Hutchinson is the author most recently of Japanese Culture Through Video Games, now available from Rutledge. Dr. Hutchinson, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Tristan. I'm very excited to be on your podcast. <laughs> thank you very much. Your work has looked at video games in Japan, and uh, you have this book coming out in a couple of weeks, even, Japanese Culture Through Video Games. And you know, when we think of video games, you know, we think of this as a very contemporary thing. But in fact, you're talking about how there's even a connection to the Meiji period. So what is this connection between video games and the Meiji period? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's why I'm here. Um, so I've done a lot of work on literature and film from Japan over the years, and there are a lot of themes that run through literature and film that also run through video games. And I think a lot of these main ideas actually have their roots in the Meiji period. So if you're looking at, for example, a sense of loss or a sense of yearning for a authentic Japanese identity that goes back to the Meiji period and that's expressed in literature, film and video games. You can also see it in issues of colonialism, how Japanese artists represent people from, you know, their close neighbours from Asia, particularly Korean characters. Uh, It's very interesting tracing the representation from literature uh, right through into the 20th century. There's a lot of continuity, if you like. So what would be examples of how these themes are represented in video games? And you know, you can even talk about specific video games, although I'm afraid I'm not too familiar myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So uh, taking the sense of loss and uh, yearning for something concrete, this idea of Japanese identity that somehow has to coexist with the modern world, I think you can see this very clearly in novels of the Meiji period, for example, uh, novels by Natsume Soseki, Nagai Kafu, Mori Ogai, people like this. But you also see it in quite recent video games even that are focused on a sense of celebrating Japanese culture. And the one that always comes to mind for me is a game called Okami. And the title is actually a pun. It means God and it also means wolf. And so in this game, you play as the white wolf, Amaterasu. (laughs) So (laughs) you are a reincarnation of the sun goddess as a wolf, and you basically run around this beautiful environment of ancient Japan, and you slay monsters from the Kojiki, and you make friends with Susanoo, also from the Kojiki, And it's basically this bringing traditional Japanese culture into the medium of video games to kind of celebrate this Japanese identity that I think a lot of people feel has been lost in some way. So you were talking about the theme of Japanese. How about the theme of colonialism? How does that appear in these games? Are these games that are set in World War II, for example, or are these, again, kind of a more metaphorical discussion of these themes? Yeah, so I actually talk about this in my book quite a bit because if you compare the Japanese video game industry against the Western video game industry, there really are not that many Japanese video games that deal with World War II. Hmm. For obvious reasons, you know, because Japan 
was defeated in that war, there's no sense of winning for the player. You know, if you go and play Call of Duty, you can feel all victorious, like you're saving the world and, and what have you. But if you're playing the war as a Japanese soldier, that's a lot more problematic. So uh, <laughs> Japanese developers have avoided that. They've set their war games in the distant past, like the feudal period mostly, or they've taken a more solid anti-war stance, like in Kojima Hideo's Metal Gear Solid series, for example. But you do get a lot of colonialism and colonial thinking that comes through in the depiction of people from Asia in particular. And here I'm thinking uh, particularly of fighting games, things like Street Fighter, Virtua Fighter, Tekken, and Soul Calibur. And it's really interesting. You can trace the development of Korean characters in particular through those games. And they're the ones that are always depicted with the least clothing. You know, they're the the sexiest and the most orientalized character out of any of the characters, uh, you know, Chinese characters included. Yeah, it's interesting. And then I was thinking, well, I wonder where this comes from. And I was looking at, I've done a lot of work on colonialism in the Meiji period and the ideas, you know, the racial hierarchy of Meiji period thinking, the whole civilization and barbarianism divide and the paradox of where does Japan fit in relation to the rest of Asia? Are we the Orient or is Asia the Orient? All of those questions that people were debating in the Meiji period are also worked out through these fighting games of contemporary times through late 1980s through to now. So you mentioned before that you were studying a lot about the literature of the Meiji period film, Mm -hmm. colonialism, other issues. So how is it that you made this transition into studying video games? And and where do you think video games fit into this field of literature, film, and and other types of cultural production? Right. Well, to start off, I've always played games. I've always been a gamer since I was very, very young. And, you know, doing a PhD and, and writing about Japanese literature like Nagai Kafu and people like this, you get used to the kinds of themes that Japanese writers, Japanese artists are really interested in and these problems that they're trying to resolve, like, you know, where does Japan fit in the world and what is my role, what's the role of the self in society in in the modern world. And the more I wrote about Japanese literature and the more I wrote about Japanese film, the more I just kept making connections thinking, well, gee, you know, the exact same ideas are being expressed and played out and problematized in video games. But generally speaking, a lot of scholars in Japanese studies don't tend to play video games so much. And a lot of the game studies scholars don't necessarily have the Japanese language background or Japanese cultural background to treat the Japanese video games as a Japanese cultural product. You know, they'll analyse Legend of Zelda or Final Fantasy or something like this in terms of game studies with characterization or player immersion or, you know, the effect of graphics and the environment and things like this but not so much as a Japanese artistic expression, you know? And I thought, well, gee, somebody should really do this. (laughs) um, (laughs) uh, I guess that somebody's me. (laughs) Uh, 
well, like you were talking about with you know looking at these video games as Japanese culture production. You know, I was just having a discussion last night even about can we look at film or look at literature for that matter and learn something about Japan. You know, look at it as、mm. telling us something about Japan at the time that it was produced. And so, can we think of a video game in the same way as, as a form of cultural production that reveals something about Japan at the time that it was produced? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I definitely agree with that idea. One big genre in Japanese video games is called the JRPG, so the Japanese role-playing game, and this includes a series like Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, Fire Emblem, games like this, where you basically play as the young hero. It's a shonen. It's nearly always male. And I really believe that this idea of the shonen hero in in the JRPG comes from <laughs> the Meiji period. <laughs> the whole idea of the self sufficient, you know, rishin shuse, go out into the world and make something of yourself.、Uh, Samuel Smiles was self help, you know, all these young questioning protagonists of Natsume Soseki's work. Right,、uh, you have to go out into the world. Like Sanshiro going to Tokyo and find your way and find helpful people to help you on your way and things like this, and that basically is the structure of a JRPG. You start out alone. You have to go into a a dangerous territory. You have to meet people to help you on your way, and what you're doing along the way is constructing an idea of the self. And I think it's interesting in video games as opposed to literature. It's the same process, but there's a difference between being a reader and being a player. So, as a reader, you're kind of sympathising with this main character. You're going along with him on his quest, etc. You're understanding him as he goes through his psychological development. But when you're playing a game, a lot of that psychological development is yours as well. Because you're learning, you're learning the world as you go through it, embodied in this character, and you're learning how social structures work. You're learning your place in the world, etc. And so you get this really interesting construction of the self happening in the JRPG. You know, it's a role-playing game, so you have to play this role, and in order to do that, you have to know what that role. Is and the world tells you the game world tells you through the narrative and missions that you have to do and things like this. So I actually think that the JRPG is today's I novel. You know, the Shishou Setsu from the Meiji period. Talking about Zelda and Final Fantasy, and you know, even for a non-gamer like me, I still recognize these games as ones that are very popular, even、yes. in North America.、Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we're thinking about this as you know something fundamentally Japanese, but you know, at the same time, it's also very popular around the world. What, what's the root of that popularity? Why did they catch on so well in the United States, for example? Well, on the one hand, I think that a lot of these games that were developed in the 1990s. Are rooted in that time period, and so they're very contextually linked to what is going on in Japan at that time. But at the same time, the developers want these games to be distributed globally. They want to make a lot of money, right? 
we have Iwabuchi Koichi's theory of mukokseki, mm-hmm. right? The culturally odorless media product that can go out into the world and be consumed anywhere. And so if you look at the characters from Final Fantasy or Fire Emblem, they're blonde, they have blue eyes, there uh, uh, might be a prince from a castle who has to go and fight a dragon, etc. Dragon Quest is the same. But if you look past that kind of superficial look of the game, the culturally odorless look of the game, and you start looking at the context of when the games were made, you do find a lot of the content, the actual narrative of the game, the symbolism, the themes that it's exploring are very relevant to the 1990s. And so you get a lot of narratives about, for example, anti-nuclear power, anti-nuclear energy, uh, the fear of the abuse of technology, and that's not just the nuclear anxiety, but also the fear of genetic manipulation and bioengineering. So if you look at Final Fantasy, Metal Gear Solid, Tekken, Resident Evil, all of those games have genetic manipulation trying to make a super soldier in some way by manipulating the nucleus of that human being, often without their consent. And if you trace it back, it's really interesting because all these games uh, that deal with that topic converge around 1996, and that's when Dolly the Sheep was cloned. And this is when bioethics and bioengineering was a really big deal in Japan in all the newspapers and and so forth. So it's really interesting analysing games of the period because there's, on the one hand, this very strong contextual element with the narrative and the themes of the games, but then they're also aiming for as broad a target audience as possible. And a lot of these games, like you were saying, are are kind of set in a different time period, a different world. What about historical Mm -hmm. games? You know, you you mentioned that in Japan's case, there aren't as many historical war games about World War II, for example. But do we have any games depicting, say, the Meiji period? Or are there other games depicting other historical moments? The Meiji period has not been so popular as the setting of video games that I'm familiar with. Um, I know there is one uh, very popular series of games called Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney. And one of those games is set in sort of Meiji period and London. Because Phoenix Wright has a relationship to Sherlock Holmes and he he goes around trying to kind of prove Sherlock Holmes wrong and things like this is quite funny. But apart from that, you know, most of the historical games from Japan are set in the feudal period. You know, this is the time of Bushido, the samurai, daimyo, all the really cool stuff that Kurosawa Akira used to make films about, right? You know, this is where we get all our Yamato Damashi, you know, the spirit of true Japan and the glorious battles and things that, you know, Japanese people feel they can be proud of, you know. You can't be proud of World War II or the Asia-Pacific War. There's too many problems there. World War I does not really even feature in not only the Japanese games industry but the Western games industry as well. It's not as clear-cut as World War II. So, yeah, if you're looking at the Japanese uh, games industry, it's definitely the feudal period. That said, there are some very interesting Japanese games that deal with World War II on a kind of roundabout way. One of them is playing as the opposite side. 
I don't know if you know this really old arcade game from the early 1980s. It's called 1942. Oh, yeah. Right. Right, the little plane down the bottom of the screen. Right. And shoot down all the Japanese planes and the aircraft carriers and, and things like this. And at the end of the game, you fight against the battleship Yamato. <laughs> It's crazy. And then the, they had a sequel. These are Capcom games. They had a sequel called 1943, The Battle of Midway, and it's, it's the same thing. And these were wildly popular games all over the world, not just in America but also back in Japan. So it's kind of interesting to think about the mental gymnastics that you would have to play through, you know, as a Japanese player, shooting down Battleship Yamato and the Nakajima <laughs> and what have you. <laughs> One of the games I did grow up playing was a computer game called Aces Over the Pacific, which was a World War II oh, game. I've and- heard of that. Yeah. In that one, you can choose either side. And I always, I mean, this was before I knew anything about Japan. I just wanted to be an iconoclast. So I would always pick the opposite side. You're like, ooh, right. I, can, I can rewrite history and make Japan win. Of course, you couldn't actually make Japan win in the game. That was, right. <laughs> they would always lose no matter if you won all your missions. <laughs> yeah. There's some interesting games with alternate history. And a lot of the really interesting Japanese war games with fictional universes or alternate histories are set at sea so you know you have like naval ops and and things like this but there's a really crazy one i don't know if you know about kantai collection it's an online it's free to play it's an online card collecting game and basically what you do is you collect cards each of which has a picture of a battleship on it right and then you make a squadron of these cards and you send them out to do battle in the pacific for you Mm. and you're the admiral um, the, the thing is, though, each battleship is anthropomorphized as this really beautiful young girl. <laughs> and they talk to you and they say, you know, things like, oh, please repair me now, Admiral, and things like this. <laughs> and so it's this hyper-sexualized vision of World War II that's mm. really over the top and it's hugely popular. They've got 5 million subscribers last time I looked. <laughs> and, um <laughs> It's also uh, a man- manga. There's a lot of people write manga based on these characters and there's an official anime series as well. And the interesting thing is at the end of the anime series, the Japanese fleet does win. Hmm. They're not battling against the Allies or Americans in the series. They're battling against these kind of deep sea creatures. But it's very clearly a, a win for Japan mm-hmm. in the Pacific War. So it's really interesting. <laughs> Speaking of these video games that depict, say, Bushido or the samurai history, whenever I teach the Sengoku period, you know, I mm-hmm. talk about this concept of Geikokujo, the bottom overcoming the top, you know, this ethos of the age. And my oh. students will always say, oh, right, I know this Geikokujo game. That, that's what that means. And oh, that, okay. And yeah. Apparently there's a game that's called yeah. Geikokujo that's all set in this time period. And there's a lot of the game titles that retain their Japanese Japanese words in the title. Like a really popular one, a launch title for the PlayStation 2 was called Kessen, and you basically play as Tokugawa Ieyasu, and it, the game opens with the Battle of Sekigahara, and it's a real-time strategy game, and you have to deploy your forces on the battlefield and what have you. And I'm not very good at real-time strategy, so I lost the Battle of Sekigahara. <laughs> 
<laughs> another like, right type of alternative it. history, I guess. Yeah, and then they're straight into alternate history, and it's <laughs> And I think there's even a Sekigahara game with that title as well, yeah. isn't there? <laughs> yeah. And a lot of them are about Oda Nobunaga because he's a more interesting figure than the Tokugawas, right? Because everybody's rooting for the underdog. Nobunaga's ambition, you know, they have 14 main titles in that series now because you want to fulfill Nobunaga's ambition. He couldn't do it, so it's up to you, the player, you know. And this is how the Japanese game development companies really can engender that sense of winning and victory for the player, which they can't do in World War II games. Speaking of the, the students, I'm curious, you know, when you're teaching about these video games, do you find that when I talk about manga, for example, or anime, I, you know, I'm not the, I don't watch a lot of anime, so my students know far more about anime than I do. You know, do you find the mm-hmm. same thing with the video games, or what are some of the things that you come across when teaching about video games in the classroom? Yeah, definitely. So I have a lot of different students that take my class. I teach a course called Video Games and Japanese Culture. And so I get a lot of students who play a lot of video games, but they don't know anything about Japan at all. And then I get the other end of the spectrum where I have students who have obsessively played every Final Fantasy game, every Fire Emblem game ever made, and they know the series more thoroughly than I do in some cases. Then I also have in the same class people who've never played a game before in their whole life. So what I do is I give them a syllabus of about 20 games that they can choose. They have to play one of the games on the syllabus. They blog about it through the semester. And each week we talk about a different idea, like graphics in games and how that uh, affects immersion or the representation of gender in games, for example, things like this. So each week has a topic And then they use the game that they're playing to address that topic. And that's how we do it. And so the people that have grown up playing Call of Duty and Halo, they get to try out some Legend of Zelda, right? The Nintendo heads that have only ever played Legend of Zelda, they might try some Metal Gear Solid or a fighting game or something like that. We also have this one game on the syllabus called Katamari Damacy, which is a simulation where you're a tiny character and you push a ball around and it slowly aggregates stuff. Okay, so you're pushing a ball around inside a home. You start off very tiny, so you're picking up paper clips and uh, erasers and gum and things like this, and you get bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, you're big enough to start picking up tatami mats and people down the street, and then you get bigger again, and you can pick up Shinto shrines and things like this. So people that have never played a game before at all can very easily play Katamari Damacy and and get a lot out of the class. I I imagine that's one class of students that absolutely love doing their homework. Funnily enough, after about six or seven weeks, They're required to play two hours of games per week. That's the requirement. And I base that on my film class where we watch one film a week and a film is around two hours long, right? So they're required to clock in and record their gameplay and and so on and so forth. And after seven weeks of this, they're they're tired. And it's (laughs) it's strange for them because they've never had to play games as work before. 
And so I always assign a reading at that point in the semester as by Judra Gill and Ken McAllister called uh, Games as Work. It's one of the chapters in their book, Gaming Matters. And it really looks at gameplay as a job. And the students have to kind of reconfigure their expectations of what playing video games is all about. Because when you're doing it for research, the game becomes a text that you have to locate in its historical context and think about symbolism in that text and what have you. And it's, it's quite different for them. And, you know, people joke about, oh, I used to like reading until I became a literature scholar or the same with <laughs> film. Are you find, do you find the same thing with your students? You know, the students that come in, you know, very avid gamers, and then by the end of the course, they never want to play a video game again. Um, a few of them say, you know, this has really changed the way that I look at games and I won't be able to just play games anymore because I'll always be looking at them with a critical eye now. Mm -hmm. And and some of them kind of mourn that loss of innocence in a way. (laughs) Um, But they do also appreciate having a fresh perspective, I think. And along the way, we do learn a lot about Japanese culture because the games are full of Japanese objects in the environment, you know, Japanese architecture, Japanese ways of dress. Uh, Japanese attitudes towards race and, and what have you. So we, we do come out at the end of the course having learned something and uh, I think they appreciate knowing something about Japan, which is a foreign country to them. So I can't let you go until I ask you what were some of your own personal favorite video games growing up or even now to this day, and then what about these games attracts you to them? Oh, wow, okay. Well, my first real love was Adventure. It's a text-only game that I played on the Apple II computer. Uh, <laughs> I would just play that obsessively for hours and hours and draw maps and everything for it. But then I guess these days, well, well, for my book, I had to play a lot of games that I would not have otherwise played, things like Kantai Collection, these war games and strategy games and things. I'm more of a role-playing game person myself. I really enjoy the Final Fantasy games and things like that. And right now I'm playing Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And I've played it before. I played it when I when it came out. But right now I'm playing through it as a pacifist, which means that I can't I'm not killing any enemies at all. And I'm also not killing any animals. So I'm as Link, this uh, young hero that's going through the world, you know, he has an inventory of food and things like this. But I'm only collecting vegetables and making all my meals <laughs> vegetarian. <laughs> Let's see if it's possible. You know, I'm not vegetarian. Um, but I want to see if it's possible to do this kind of thing uh, because very keen players talk about this kind of a playthrough online and I wanted to experience that for myself, so I'm really enjoying it. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.